Hello and welcome to Additive Insight, your source for news, interviews and comment on the latest 3D printing and additive manufacturing intelligence brought to you by TCT. I'm TCT Head of Content Laurel Griffiths and we're back with another executive interview, this time with MakeLab co-founder and CEO Christina Perler. Christina founded MakeLab, a Brooklyn-based 3D printing service with her husband Manny back in 2017. At the time, the co-founders were freelancing as industrial designers and offering 3D printing as an additional service. But within two years, the 3D printing part really took off. Now, MakeLab runs a lab of desktop printers, producing parts on demand for companies from Quip to NVIDIA. On this episode, Christina talks scaling, the power of localised manufacture, and ambitions to become the modern-day kinkos of additive manufacturing. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And for more additive insight, head on over to tctmagazine.com to get your free print subscription to the mag, plus the biggest news stories delivered straight to your inbox every week. Hi, Christina. Thank you so much for joining us on the Additive Insight podcast today. How are you doing? I am doing lovely. It's 11 a.m. here in New York, and I've got my coffee in front of me, and I'm ready to talk business. <laughs> Great. Yeah, I, I noticed there's a tweet from you a few weeks back when you said you can always tell how busy you are jumping from one thing to the next based on the number of coffee cups you've started. Is today already a lot of coffee cups day? <laughs> <laughs> so, like, literally in front of me, I have two. One is empty and one is full, so... uh <laughs> it's funny you said that <laughs> I definitely know the feeling <laughs> so uh, for our listeners who may not already know and um, you have a background in industrial design you've of course founded MakeLab can you talk about your experience with additive manufacturing how you started and, and how you came to found MakeLab yeah so it's a crazy like happenstance serendipitous experience so Back um, at Pratt, we were. I went to school for industrial design. That's my. That was my major. That's where I met my husband and co-founder Manny, mm-hmm. and that's where we learned traditional model making and we learned the entire design process and everything that you know had to do with it. Um, there was three D printing on site, but honestly, it was a large machine with a tiny build volume. You know, this was back in 20, 2012, 2013, 2014, around that time. So technology was not where where it is today. And so it would just shake and it looked complex. So I never even, you know, tried to understand the process. So what I did was I was just using wood and foam to make my models and I would paint them and join compound and everything. But, you know, cut to a few years later, Um, I caught the entrepreneurial bug pretty early and I started to freelance with Manny, my husband and Mm co-founder, and we would take on various clients for uh, different product design and development projects. And that's when we needed to use 3D printing because we just didn't have time to spend a whole day in the shop making Mm -hmm. a model that was like for a quick approval. So, you know, we started working with this local company called 3D Uniprint. They were so nice, so kind. About a year later, you know, we had become friends with the owners and it was a really small business too, but we had become friends with the owners and the entire team and they were actually looking to move uh, overseas to China. Mm -hmm. And so they asked us if we wanted to acquire the assets to the business and take over. And so, you know, at that time we had been a year into freelancing. Freelance is rough with no network. You, You don't know what you're doing half the time. Income is important, especially in New York. (laughs) And so we jumped at the opportunity because we thought this would be a great way for us to stabilize our income 
add in something that we could upsell to our cust- our current customer list and you know take the pressure off of designing and you know just focus on it and ha- be able to spend time with it mm-hmm. um, but about two years later everything no a year and a half later everything pretty much blew up we had no more time for design we 3x the company and we 3x the revenue and and like things just we were getting all these big clients through the door and we had called ourselves a name and we just made up make lab you know we're designers so we made up this little logo put up a little website but we were getting like all these customers through the door so you know in 2019 we were like okay maybe maybe this is the business we focus on maybe mm-hmm. this is this is the one and so that's when we decided to go for a venture round and like you know really scale up the business think long term and you know try to build a brand and it sounds like you definitely made the right decision because Make Lab has grown substantially since its founding back in 2017. And, you know, you've moved HQs now to Brooklyn. You've expanded your team. As you mentioned, you've got funding and all these different success stories. Can you just walk us through what we might see if we if we walked into Make Lab today and maybe how that's changed <laughs> in those very early days? Oh, my gosh. So their very early days were so, so, so incredibly humble. Like those were very much the 2017 freelance operations. We were still trying to do everything. Mm-hmm. So we were actually in a 200 and I think 215 square foot office that was within another office, which was mm-hmm. so awkward. <laughs> no privacy. <laughs> but we had machines. We were doing post-processing. That's where I got my first you know, chisel injury, uh, trying to take off supports. Yeah. First set of stitches. It was great. Um, <laughs> but we have moved around in the building quite often. And now we're up to, I think, about maybe 1,500 square feet total, which is yeah. incredible. And so we're still very much like the before version because we're just gearing up after having raised. So we're about to make a lot of changes. We have FDM, we have SLA, we have a team of three in the lab. We're prepping to hire two more to that daily ops lab team. We have a couple of super motivated interns that come in multiple days. We have myself, Manny. We just hired Rick Chin from Desktop Metal. He was a co-founder and led their software efforts. We have a CFO. We have advisors, and we just onboard uh, soft. We just got soft commits from two more software team members. So it's 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 really it's really exciting to to think about you know where we came from from that two hundred. 15 square foot office to like now and like now we're we're a half remote team and it's just it's just super exciting yeah it it sounds like you've got an awful lot going on and I do want to talk a little bit more about those different types of technologies you mentioned then um, a little bit later but you know you're growing the team you you've You've done really well in terms of growing your um, your customer base in various different industries. I just wondered if you can talk about any customer stories that you're particularly proud of or maybe any that you're currently working on that you're excited about. Oh, my God. Yes. So this is perfect timing because we just um, wrapped up doing some customer research interviews because we like to get in touch with our customers, with our like a. Uh, our top repeat customers from time to time just to mm-hmm. reacquaint ourselves with why they like make lab what exactly their problems are how how we're solving it how can we do better and so there's this there's two stories that stand out in particular particular to me uh one is my friend justin so justin and i met through an app called lunch club and we he became a really really good friend of mine and this entire time he's developing his business it's called right one and he's developing different fan stages and doing prototyping. This entire time during our friendship, up until I think last month, he talked about 
his troubles with specialized machine shops doing custom milling for it to get his fan stages made out of out of metal. I, I'm forgetting which metal uh, he was using, but mm-hmm. he he had so many problems with them. Then he was like, you know what, Christina, I'm going to try 3D printing. And he's a mechanical engineer, by the way, but mm-hmm. he wasn't really taught the ins and outs of 3D printing and how it can assist a development process for hardware. And so he got, I guided him through the process, through the on. Through the, through the online quoter. And he definitely, being my friend, got like the specialized onboarding process from me. But when he received his parts, he immediately called me. Actually, he FaceTimed me. And he's like, Christina, I didn't know how, how smooth this was going to be. Why did I need to go to a machine shop this whole time? Oh my God, you were right. It doesn't bend at all. He had printed in like an engineering, like SLA resin. And so it was really like high quality and like super sharp, uh, super clean surface. Everything was, was the tolerances were tight. And, you know, this really surprised me, his reaction, because he's a mechanical engineer. Mm. Um, but it turns out his, his prior experience with 3D printing was with an unkept FDM machine at his school. And so if you think about... <laughs> you know, that versus what we do here at Make Lab, mm-hmm. like part of our job is to deliver quality. So we're going to, we're going to make sure our machines are good to go. So that was, that was quite interesting. Yeah. Um, that, that's a really interesting angle, actually, you know, the fact that you say, you know, this guy's an engineer and hadn't really considered that 3D printing was capable of doing this now. And <laughs> I guess I'm, I'm spoiled being in this industry because I hear so many success stories all the time. And you, you kind of just assume that people are very aware of 3D printing. But I guess that's that's not always always the case. And I know we, uh, you and I talked recently about some of the motivators that people have for coming to use 3D printing and, and coming to MateLab service. And you shared a great story last year with us about um, NVIDIA using MateLab to test out these camera mounts for their self-driving uh, car mounts have been able to pick up prints locally right from the make lab mm. facility and having that benefit there what are some of the other key drivers that people are coming to make lab for and, and turning to 3d printing you know it's really interesting because as a bootstrapped freelance operation that just kind of fell into all of this we we quickly found something good but we internalized it so much and we didn't intend initially have intentions to scale. So we didn't keep track of these things. So much of the last year has been, you know, going back a little bit and trying to figure out why we've hit success, Mm -hmm. why people love picking up, why people love us, um, because they keep coming back. And so one thing we found is, you know, as a manual, as like a a small service bureau, one of the core value props is is high touch. Mm -hmm. The customers love that white glove service. But the thing is, it's not even it's not even about it's not even like a consultancy. It's basic questions about materials. It's basic questions about when will I receive my part. Mm-hmm. Those are things that are um, really once their questions are answered, that's what they love about us. We're a brand that they can trust. They develop trust more and more as soon as they order more and more. They actually need less touch points because they're mm-hmm. ed- so educated about our product and like what we do, and so a few things of that high touch aspect is supported by local and supported by the software product. Mm-hmm. We actually don't meet in person most of our customers. A lot of our customers pick up locally. A lot of our orders are picked up locally, but we don't meet everybody. So that means there's something about that digital process that draws people in and you know, it, 
the local is what delivers on that execution. It's the final step of validation of trust that delivers on that execution. And what we found is like customers love that we have a reliable service team here if they need, should they need it. Kind of like how maybe you need the Apple Genius Bar. You just love how close it is. They, they love knowing that their problems will be taken care of should they have them. And, you know, for, for us, we've really tried to grow this culture within MakeLab of, of always learning. I think being an industrial designer, me and, my, me and Manny, that's just in our blood. As a designer, you can never stop learning. That's the moment you stop learning, you have really dated yourself in a way. <laughs> and so, you know, we've really, we've really built that into the culture. So anytime anyone does pick up, we see it as a moment to connect. We see it as a, as a moment to have with the customer to build that trust and build that um, relationship. And, you know, the customers, they love the experience, the entire start, start to finish experience. They love the reliability. They love the quality. They love how easy it is and they love how easy we make it. So as we scale, we're going to scale up those pillars. Yeah, and for those customers, as you say, the ones that maybe you don't meet that just benefit from this um, digital online process, the, the fact that you're hiring these new figures uh, with such software experience, is that about really building out that those software capabilities so that you can, the customers can just have this very streamlined digital um, online workflow with you guys? Yes. So being that we've really under, understood now the the points that customers need to, you know, feel like they trust us, that those are things that we can build out via software that create and generate that same human, thoughtful and trustworthy experience, mm-hmm. but be less high touch for us. Yeah. So that means we can scale. <laughs> so that's exactly what we're what we're doing with our software. And you can tell just from talking to you, you now, Christine, you, you, you both have such an entrepreneurial spirit and, you know, the whole, the whole founding of this company was, was, was really about that. And I know you've previously said that one of the key things that drives you and the team at Make Lab is about being able to enable small businesses uh, through the company. Can you give any examples that have particularly stood out to you where, where that's been the case? Yes. So I, I, again, in prepping for, you know, the pitch and everything, I was doing some research and I found out through some hardware founder friends and um, people that work maybe at lead teams in bigger businesses for hardware is typical dev development times for, for physical products are months and they can cost up to hundreds of thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm. Like this is insane. No wonder why hardware is so frowned upon sometimes. And so, you know, it's, it's such a scary thing to a lot of people. So it tends to halt people before they even start. And Mm -hmm. so for my friend, Justin with right one, this was the case, right? Like the fact that they had to deal with these millers and machine specialized machine shops to turn out like metal parts that took forever he would get ghosted people would avoid picking up the phone for him Um, like what 3d printing did for for justin was it helped get him to a point where he can pitch sooner he can get his product in front of investors sooner get pre-sales sooner for Another client that's a freelance industrial designer that works for multiple brands, including Quip and um, I think I'm not remembering the name, but a baby a baby product brand. Mm-hmm. Um, he recently told us that 3D printing enables him to show his clients something real, so they can approve his work and move on to the next step. So it's just reducing that development time. And you know, one thing I also found is like 
that first prototype is a moment of fruition for so many hardware founders. Like it's mm-hmm. a point of, of confidence and it's like, wow, I made this. And, you know, emotionally, that's a memory that they carry with them throughout the rest of their journeys and their careers. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, their initial fears of a long and chaotic process are diminished because mm-hmm. we help them make it easy and pleasant and cost-effective and short and just like simple. So we empower them to do it again for their next project. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's powerful. We help them get to their launch date faster and we empower them to do it again with more confidence. Today's episode is sponsored by 3D Systems. Here, Sam Green, 3D Systems Professional Printer Category Manager, discusses advancements in polymer materials to increase AM repeatability, productivity, and part performance. I know that 3D printing has been moving for some time now from a predominantly prototyping tool to a manufacturing tool. And the real end game really is for 3D printing not to replace traditional manufacturing, but to support that, adding breadth and depth and agility and complexities to where it's uh, really required. SLS is a great contender for producing uh, plastic, true plastic parts, thermoplastics in PA12, nylons. However, the drawback of many thermoplastic technologies has been the process by which these individual layers of the parts are melded together. So large thermal discrepancies can occur typically across either a single part where you display different mechanical properties at one end of the part and different mechanical properties at the other end. And the same is true if you have a batch of parts. But what we've really done, we've created the new SLS 380 3D printer. And this is designed to deliver consistent and repeatable parts. So we've installed eight individually controlled heaters. And then we've installed a high resolution IR camera that's able to take 100,000 thermal data samples from within the build chamber every second. So the system's algorithm is able to quickly identify any areas where there's high thermal gradient uh, or very low thermal gradient. And then it immediately adjusts the duty cycle of the relevant heater to remove that thermal discrepancy and ensure a more consistent sintering process. And ultimately, this uh, temperature stability creates significantly higher part yields and ultimately a more efficient process and even lower part costs. You guys have talked a lot about advancing the science and one of those areas is photopolymer resins. Can you just elaborate on how you're leveraging that to deliver production grade part performance there? We've been able to develop a series of novel patented chemistries and these have really opened the door to the first true production ready photopolymers for additive manufacturing. So we started this process for the figure four 3D printer with our tough black 20 material. This along with other production grade materials that we've released since then, all these materials are tested to demonstrate that they can retain most of their mechanical properties typically up to eight years indoor and two years outdoor. 30 years ago, 3D Systems invented the SLA 3D printing uh, technology, uh, which uses a vector laser to scan and cure resins in a vat. In contrast to that, the figure four, it still uses a vat, of course, but it replaces that laser with a projector-based imaging system that cures a whole layer at a time rather than point by point. So the great advantage of this is, of course, uh, speed. Figure 4 is unique in that it is a non-contact membrane technology 
which means the part does not come into contact with a transparent layer at the bottom of the print tray. So the end game has always been to port over the revolutionary material advances we've made from the projector-based figure four to our SLA range, such as the Pro X800. Back in July, we launched the first of these materials. It's called the Acura AMX Rigid Black, a high-strength uh, production-grade SLA material with really good environmentally stabilized uh, properties that can withstand years of indoor, outdoor UV and humidity exposure. It's ideal for large one-to-one -one scale automotive, consumer durable mounts, frames, jigs, fixtures, or internal frames in things like such as uh, white goods. But taken together, we now have a very powerful solution mix when it comes to resins. If you need small batch quantities of tens to hundreds of thousands of production grade plastic parts, the figure four is an excellent solution. And now if you need large one-to-one -one scale, large production parts, we now have our SLA platform with the first in our range of Acura AMX materials. To learn more about long-term resin performance and industrial scale SLS workflow solutions, visit mytct.co forward slash 3D systems pod or mytct.co forward slash pod SLS. And as you mentioned, you've got a range of technologies um, in-house at MateLab that allow um, these startups and, and new companies to do this and you have also commented on how you'd like to see more OEMs consider service bureaus when designing their solutions and you also mentioned how you especially like to see that at the desktop level do you think that that's changed at all um over the last few years I think I think it has slightly but I also think that framing should be a part of the equation I, mm. I feel like in this industry there's still such a divide between industrial and desktop and it boils down to fidelity of output parts Mm -hmm. But and then and then if you think about it, you know, another way to think about it is scale as well. So, you know, scaling up to industrial equipment is definitely valid valid. And I think there's a case in for service bureaus where both exist, especially on depending on how you're packaging your services to your clients. And I'd like that to be a little bit more of the equipment, like part of the conversation. Like mm -hmm. when does that happen? When should I use desktop? When should I use industrial? There are, um, there's so many options out there these days. And sometimes what I see with our, with our clients is with materials, there's so many options. They get this paralysis, mm -hmm. like they, they want to use 3D printing for their projects, but they just don't know where to start. And the same thing's happening for this industry for machines as well. And people that buy machines, businesses that buy machines. Mm -hmm. And so I'd love to see more context in, in those conversations and in those solutions. I think that could be interesting. And and so from that, do, do you see it being the case where businesses could come to Make Lab and not only start prototyping their designs, but then almost scale that so that they're then using 3D printing for the production side as well? Absolutely, absolutely. There's a big market to capture and nothing is stopping this industry. There's this entire um, like, notion of the U.S. wanting to reshore manufacturing because it's a big industry. The U.S. Mm -hmm. wants to keep it, you know, especially after what we've seen during the pandemic. I mean, supply chains are so easily disrupted. Like costs went up 10x and development times went up 20 to 30x. That's insane. Imagine being a startup and having that. That's that that could kill a business for sure. And so the U.S. wants to bring it back to shore and also, you know, keep that business in-house, so to speak. And so um, we definitely want to capture that market and we're building for that for tomorrow and we're excited about it. 
Yeah, I think over the last few years, we have really seen heightened conversations around 3D printing and supply chain and the way businesses turn to 3D printing is kind of a temporary stopgap. Have you seen that from your end as well? People turning to MateLab and saying, we, we need to do this quickly. We need to swap our operations over to a 3D printed alternative. Have you seen that kind of thing happening in the last few years? We've seen more and more inquiries, but being that we still have, you know, prototyping mainly machines, Mm. um, we can't always accept the business that we want to at this stage. And so that is part of our scale plans because we are seeing it. I mean, if you think about um, Manny and I were talking one night about, you know, this whole notion of, of manufacturing and traditional manufacturing and AM parts being more and more viable and parts being made more and more via AM. And we looked at our Roomba in the house and we, we've taken it apart so many times because, you know, things get stuck, socks, cords, everything. <laughs> and taking it apart, this is a complex assembly. Even if 25% of the parts inside of a Roomba can be manufactured locally and through additive, that saves so much headache, so mm-hmm. much dis- possible disruption, so much cost even. And so... It's definitely a trend that we see growing, and um, we're we're excited. We're here mm-hmm. for it. But like you say, though, that you know you're, you're focused on well the prototyping side, but some of the machines that you've got in house, things like the the Formas machines and, and the materials available on, on those now, they're certainly expanding the capabilities of what's possible on, on a desktop machine. And I, I wondered if there's anything that you would maybe say to anyone that still thinks of these desktop systems as purely hobbyist or <laughs> or, or making machines. Are there any kind of misconceptions that you you'd like to break? Oh my gosh, this is a conversation I have with my friends all the time. It's it's so frustrating. Um, make Lab, because we have the word make in our name, mm-hmm. is commonly associated with the, being a B2C hobbyist, like maker only type of customer. And, you know, this whole this whole thing of, of, you know, industrial versus desktop, it truly feels unfair in our industry. I attend, you know, different events, um, different, different online events, different industry events, and there's this always discussion and this, you know, this, it's kind of this thing. Um, And the word make is automatically associated with non-scalable, non-serious, non-professional use cases, and it's automatically regarded as small. But the thing is, high fidelity parts that coming out of desktop machines is a thing, and it's cost effective, and it's possible. Like, sure, you don't have some of the bells and whistles, and you may not be able to run an entire production line from these machines, but there's also an element of, like, what you do and what you make of it. If you can add a little bit of creative creative problem solving and innovative problem solving, you can have a scalable business off of desktop machines. Um we do a lot of tours. And so, you know, our lab, we're in, we're in Brooklyn, we're in downtown Brooklyn, which is very much like Manhattan. And so office space, you know, we, we don't have this giant expansive space. So a lot of people come in, they see the number of machines we have, the type of machi- machines we have, and they think we're small. But as we walk them through how we made this super scalable, profitable, and efficient, and they see the workflow and how strategic we were, mm-hmm. then they get it then that that narrative comes and you can do a lot with a little. It Mm -hmm. just takes some innovative problem solving. 
And I understand throughout the pandemic, uh, you sent your team home to, to you know, when work from home um, restrictions were put in place, you sent your team home and, and instead the Make Lab leadership team just really rolled up their sleeves, got stuck in with production, acting as key workers yourselves, producing things like PPE and essential items. Uh, can you just tell us what that experience was like? And I'm kind of curious to know if you learned anything from really um, diving back in and, and, and being hands on there. Oh my gosh. It was honestly amazing. It was definitely stressful trying to balance like, you know, a few roles all at once. But it, it honestly, you know, Manny and I always had this belief that everyone should be able to roll their hands up. Every executive should roll their sleeves up every once in a while, at least a few times a year. Um, what we learned and what we saw, we saw loopholes in our process that we didn't see at a high level before. We understood our employees' perspectives, some of the problems that they had reson- that that they had they had brought up during various team syncs and morning huddles, they were starting to make sense. We were starting to connect dots of like everything that we heard. We were starting to see it like play out in real time. Um, we also saw the value of culture mm-hmm. because we saw the the value of having traditions set in place so that information can pass from high level from management and leadership all the way down to, you know, the key operators the key workers, the key the key staff that, that are leading the daily operations. And we also saw, and within ourselves, like what keeps people going? Like what are those little wins during the day that enable someone to keep going and like doing the work? And so we also saw the, the importance of cross-training in the Make Lab universe. I mean, we're at that time, we still are, but at that time, especially, we were a really small business. And so one person's out, you know, what happens? So the, the fact that everyone can kind of sit in each other's seats and drive is really valuable. So that's something we, we made an effort to be to do from that point on. And all of this was really great because, you know, prepping for a raise at the end of 2020, that's when we started and really pairing the reality of our operations with our narrative, with our with our pitch was educational, to say the least. And we also saw the importance firsthand for like that local people kept picking up through the pandemic and especially in, in the way beginning when they were like, you shouldn't leave the house. Um, people were still picking up and people were still doing their work. People were still printing parts. And so it was nice to be able to have that face time with the customer as well. Yeah. And you touched on that you were getting ready for, for a raise at the, the, the start of all this, and you've successfully achieved this this round of, of, of seed funding. Can you give us any kind of idea into what that may be used for in terms of your growth plans and, and where Make Lab is headed to next? Yeah. So our goal is to be one of the most trusted brands, trusted and well-known brands in the 3D printing space. And we want to put this technology into the hands of every designer and every, any and every engineer. And we want to do it in a way that's closer than what's currently being offered. And this is a hard problem to solve. But what we see is we see a wonderful void, a wonderful gap that we believe that we can fill. And we want to make sure that we're delivering value to the customer at every single interaction. And so we're building out this customer experience that's meaningful, intentional, and, and is, is well thought out and is strategic, paired with building really the modern day version of Kinko's of additive manufacturing. Pretty, pretty big ambitions. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
And you've spoken um, a lot during this about um, localised manufacture, the power of localised uh, manufacturing, you know, customers being able to come and, and you know, pick up items uh, from the lab. And the company is growing, as you say, it's continuing to grow. Are there any ambitions to expand Make Lab maybe further than Brooklyn to, to other locations to, to really extend that local manufacture to other places? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, <laughs> what we see is like the push for local manufacturing is real. And this whole trend of pushing towards local extends beyond the world of making things. You see it in in the power and electricity industries. You see it in farming, especially in Brooklyn. There are so many rooftop farms. Whole Foods in Brooklyn has uh like I think they sell food that is grown on their rooftop. This has been a thing for for years now, but it's something that people want. And you know, what's interesting is like you were saying in the beginning, maybe before we started, you know, recording, we were talking about like we work in 3D, so we forget the amazement of what it is to actually bring a concept to life and mm-hmm. to have the tools and resources to do so and also close by. And we forget that people outside of the industry, even in you know, industrial design, product design, or mechanical engineering view this entire development process as chaotic and confusing, just like how I myself find like coding confusing and difficult. (laughs) This technology is like so cool. It's like so amazing and it's so empowering. And we've been able to build up this entire MakeLab community of customers, of employees, of interns, of people that want to work here. And we see ourselves leveraging that to take our entire mission a step further and bring it to a point of even more accessibility. Like we want MakeLab to come to the customer. And before I let you go, Christina, I, I just want to touch on the work that you do with owning 3D printing as well, because um, as our listeners will know, this is an organization which is having a huge impact in the additive manufacturing industry, especially with things like the tight 3D printing conference and, mm. and all the international meetups. And I know you recently shared with TCT on International Women's Day about um, how you'd like to see more structure around the recruitment process in industry to really foster diversity and inclusion. And I just wondered if you can just um, elaborate a little bit on that for the listeners. Yeah, I I was talking to a bunch of friends on that day and we were taught, this has been a topic of conversation for a while. I think ever since it was really brought to my attention when SJ and Alex Kingsbury did that uh, type thing, how mm-hmm. to, about getting the bag. and Oh, you know, yeah. Great. <laughs> yeah, that was a great one. That was a great presentation. I think it's online somewhere. Just shamelessly plugging them for a sec. <laughs> a lot of um, link in the description. <laughs> okay. They're gonna love it. Um, but like what I what I what I see in a lot of recruit processes is not enough effort to eliminate bias. And so if you're hiring diverse talent, then don't just make every single touch point with a non-diverse person. Like make Like, not just in terms of background and ethnicity and culture, but also in terms of roles. Like, it's rare in a company, um, probably this is a company you don't want to work for if you're completely siloed, but you're probably going to cross-collaborate with many different departments and many different people, many different types of people. I don't fully understand why that's not brought into the recruit process earlier on. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, it's things like changing the wording of what you're trying to attract, Put, putting more storytelling into job descriptions, like inspiring beyond just the task list. I think these are things of how you structure the recruit process to be more intentional, to be more authentic and make it two-way. I mean, 
you know, I've always struggled myself with recruiting because I always felt like I was trying to get to know someone under the structure that Mm. I myself never felt comfortable with as an interviewee. And it was such limited time. And, you know, these are people that you're going to spend much of your awake hours with. So you really want to make sure you connect with them and you can build great things and make great things happen with them. And so I'd I'd love to see, I mean, we do this at Make Lab, but we do a little bit more of a two-way interview process. I try to, you know, get the person as comfortable as possible so we can actually just get to know the person. Mm. I don't want to see your stage, your stage show. You know, I want to know who you are. And so I think this is all under the realm of fostering like true authenticity. And I think just being intentional with these steps are, are things that could change, mm-hmm. that could happen. And, and it feels extra relevant to the 3D printing industry because, you know, we're, we're not just trying to attract um, traditional engineers and people with just a manufacturing background. It's um, people with creative backgrounds and, and, and various different other qualifications to really um, I think just to really open up the possibilities and the different types of perspectives that you get within the industry. Yeah, absolutely. I think like, just like any other industry, what, what needs to happen for it to mature is you need to have different perspectives, the mm. case in point. And so the only way that you're going to make that happen is if you, you know, get a little uncomfortable yourself, if, if that makes you uncomfortable, mm-hmm. eliminate bias and be more intentional and, you know, more collaborative. 